Thank you, worship team. It has been a very powerful missions conference, hasn't it? Uh, reflecting on what it takes to stand for him. If you weren't there Friday night, we're hoping to have a recording at least of the presentation, not the Q&A, available through Iron to Iron Ministries website. But uh, what a blessing it has been to have Andrew and Noreen with us uh, this weekend. So thank you. As you know, the, uh, Brunson's currently serve as founders and directors of Wave Starters. I encourage you to visit their website. They got a very powerful video, that 11-minute video that just rehearses uh, the story and where God has brought them. But this ministry is focused on the Muslim world, the persecuted church, because, as we know, for 25 years they served in Izmir, Turkey, ministering to the folks there and to refugees that were coming in to Turkey. Their ministry has expanded, uh, but let me give you just a brief background. He attended Trinity Seminary. They met in Wheaton, attended Trinity, and then Aberdeen, where our paths crossed. And uh, Andrew was known as the, the bright one, the caring one, and I mentioned a strong evangelist, and that he was. But Andrew and Noreen, as many of you know, uh, you've been praying for them. Uh, some of you shared, we had their photo on our refrigerator for over two years as both Andrew and Noreen were arrested in October of 2016 in Turkey for being associated with terrorism as well as espionage. While Noreen was shortly released, she risked all to remain in Turkey to stand beside Andrew and to serve as an advocate for him. Certainly it's the hand of the Lord and his timing, but the Lord raised up literally millions of believers around the globe that started to join in prayer for Andrew and for Noreen. And we are indeed very humbled and honored. They have a very, very busy schedule. So to fit us in, we want to thank you. And indeed, it is my delight, as I said on Friday night, to introduce you to a convicted terrorist, a mighty warrior for our Lord, a dear friend, and a saint for our Savior. Andrew, let's welcome Dr. Andrew Brunson. I, I have a cold, and I wasn't feeling very good this morning until I came and I saw those donuts. And I, now I'm happy. <clears throat> so I, I want to talk today about what almost knocked me out of my friendship with God. Because uh, I think it's a real danger for most believers, and especially when we go through difficulties. And this is uh, the danger of the offended heart, of the, the heart that is wounded toward God and because of that becomes offended toward Him. And I really struggled with this and I came close to losing my friendship with God because of this. Now, the conditions of my imprisonment for, well, the isolation I felt, the, the loneliness, the fear that I would never be with my family again. These were very difficult. But I also understood that I was imprisoned because of my faith in Jesus, because of my ministry, and that this was persecution. And I understood this intellectually. I can get my mind around the idea that I'm being persecuted. I don't like it. I'd rather not be persecuted. But what really led to the wounding of my heart 
I could understand persecution intellectually, but the wounding of the heart came from saying, where are you, God, in the midst of it? I'm suffering for you, Jesus. Where is your presence? Where are signs of your love? So the reason that I had expectations, I, I'd read biographies. If you read biographies, you, I think sometimes people are surprised when I, when I start to speak and, and uh, they're expecting some very uh, victorious. There were many victories in prison, but a very triumphalist. You know, I was strong. I, I, I love prison. It was great because I was there for Jesus, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and then I actually talk about the brokenness. I don't want to focus on brokenness because there was a rebuilding process God took me through. But for the first year, especially, I, was, I broke repeatedly. I broke thoroughly I, in, in, in every way. There were a lot of defeats. And so there was victory. There were many victories along the way, but it was in the midst of great difficulty and of also of brokenness and weakness. So the biographies that I read did not prepare me for what I faced in prison. Uh, I, if someone had told me, Andrew, you're going to spend time in a Turkish prison, I would have been a bit afraid, but I, I also would have kind of had a sense of bravado. Yeah, bring it on. It's going to be, you know, someone sent me a message early on. They said, Andrew, now it's just you and God. It's going to be really good. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't really good. <laughs> it was, well, I mean, there were some good things that came out of it, but it was very difficult. But that was a mentality that I would have had, this sense of bravado. Okay, it's going to be difficult. Maybe I'm going to struggle a bit. I'll feel some weakness and grief at times. But there's also going to be this sense of joy. There's going to be a, a strength. I'm going to have a sense of grace because... Because that's what I expect, not only from the biographies I've read, the people who are my spiritual heroes, but also from, from my personal walk with God, from my experience with Him. So I had expected this, and, and I didn't get it. <laughs> I had expected that even in weakness and grief, and grief, I would have that sense, supernatural strength and joy, but I didn't have any sense of strength. And, and I had no joy. I, I was desperate. I was, had a hopelessness. I was in despair. I was breaking down emotionally and physically. I, I lost 50 pounds. I was a basket case. And I also went into a spiritual crisis. And also, as I mentioned on Friday, I had spent years running after the heart of God. After intimacy with him, uh, his presence. And this, this had been my focus for a number of years. And so I was really surprised when I lost all sense of God's presence. And I, I remember saying to him, are you just a God of conferences? You know, we're with other people and I'm happy and I'm being blessed and I have a sense of his presence. I see signs of his love. But now I'm in the most desperate time of my life. I don't know if I'm going to survive this even. I'm breaking emotionally. I'm, I'm, I'm alone. I'm isolated. I don't have any other believers with me. Where are you now? And now I'm confused. There are a lot of, I have a lot of questions, uh, theological questions. And, and I don't have anyone to correct me when I'm thinking wrongly. And you're not speaking to me. I felt abandoned. I had also taught for years on the kind and on the father heart of God, on the kind and gentle father. And I'm thinking, you know, some of my expectations came because 
because of how God describes himself in the Bible. He describes himself as a father, right? And, and I'm, his, I'm his son. And I thought, I wouldn't treat my kid this way <laughs> as a father. Or he also talks about, he describes himself as, as, as a husband, as, a, as an ardent lover, and, and I'm the object of his affection. I'm the bride. I wouldn't treat my wife this way. This is what I'm thinking. And my, my, my mother said to me, she's a very kingdom-minded person. She, uh, she uh, helped me with, uh, uh, with her sober evaluation, I would say realistic evaluation of what I was going through. She, she said, Andrew, if one of your children was very ill and had to have something like chemotherapy, which is very painful, you would do it, even though they don't understand, you'd put them through it, wouldn't you? I said, yes, of course. But I'd also say, I'm right here beside you. I'm with you. God, where is your presence? This is what really took me into crisis. All the conditions that I was under would have broken me anyway, <laughs> but, but not spiritually. The, the real disappointment, the wounding of the heart came from saying, where is my kind and gentle father? Everything's getting worse and worse and worse. Instead of you intervening, maybe you won't get me out of prison, maybe uh, you know, that's just part of being persecuted, but at least... Let me see signs of your presence and of your love. All the ways that you have shown me your love in the past. Let me at least taste some of that. Let me know your presence. And I didn't. For two years, I had no sense of God's presence. For two years, I felt like I was in the dark. So objectively, I can say that God did not abandon me. Because we all know the verse that What's that, what is that verse? <laughs> I forget it now. <laughs> I have antihist, drowsy antihistamine in me, so I'm not completely, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But it sure felt that way. And even Jesus went through something like that, didn't he? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God forsake him or not? People just argue about it. But he had that real sense of, of being forsaken and abandoned by God when he was on the cross. So as I look back now, I can see I had grace. I did, it just was an unfelt grace. Grace took me through, I couldn't have made it without that, but it was, it was less than I expected. It wasn't, it wasn't as strong or empowering as I had hoped it would be. And so my heart was deeply wounded. My expectations of God, he didn't meet my expectations. What came through those biographies and my own walk with him and even, even what I expected from my reading of the Bible. And this deep disappointment led to, to, to doubts, to anger, to accusation. I, I, maybe you'll find this hard to believe, but it even led me to question God's existence. And this is after I'd seen many Muslims come to Jesus or our ministry. I'd been teaching and preaching for years. I've been following, you know, I'm, I'm, I put my life on the line in some ways, taking risks in Turkey uh, for, for God. And now I'm saying, do you really exist? Because that's where the wounding of the heart, if we allow it to turn into offense, that's where it can take us. Then I eventually said, well, God, I... I'm concluding that you must exist because you're the only reason that I'm suffering in prison. So, so you must exist. Actually, I had to have a discipline where I, re, I, I wrote out I, I, several truths that I repeated as a, as a discipline several times a day early on. And the first truth was, God, I believe that you exist and that you're, 
you're involved in my life. That's what I was reduced to. I had to repeat it and repeat it to myself to stand on that truth. You exist and you're involved in my life. But then I, I moved on to just accusing him, questioning his character. God, do you really love me? I'm not, I'm not sure. Because the Bible talks about how God loves the... God, so for God so loved the world. I know you love the whole world. I know you love... You collectively, it talks a lot about God's love for Israel, for example. But, but do you love Andrew Brunson? Do you love me? Because I'm not seeing it. And your faithfulness. Where is your faithfulness? I don't see it. If this is your faithfulness, then I don't understand your faithfulness. And I questioned whether he's really good and whether he's completely true. So this offense in my heart was strangling my relationship with God. Now I didn't end up here. I don't want you to just feel a heaviness. Actually, God brought me through and he transformed my heart, especially my second year in prison. But I think many believers are, will go through a crisis where they end up having some of these questions. So this offense in my heart was strangling my relationship with God. And this is what Jesus was warning about when he said, you, you probably all have heard the verse, the love of many will grow cold. That Jesus warns that the love of many people, people who are already the people of God, can grow cold toward him. And he was speaking when he said this, Jesus is speaking to the people of God, saying that many are going to turn away because they become offended. Now, when something bad happens, when there's a natural disaster, or even there, there's a terrible event that's directly the result of man's sin, for example, there's a war or you know, some violence that happens, a mass shooting, most people become angry at God. They blame him. God, if you're all-powerful and you're, you're, you're loving, you're a God of love, how can you let this happen? Why did you not intervene? And Jesus warned specifically that believers will become offended at God as God allows evil to metastasize. There's gonna, going to be more, a growing evil, a growing darkness, which actually we already see in our own country. And many believers will be offended at God because of the degree of wickedness that he allows. And believers will also be offended at the judgments of God because God will bring judgment as a consequence of this wickedness. And I believe that in the years, short years ahead of us, we are going to see what happens when a nation turns, the, the leaders of a nation turn their back on God. So we as believers are not under judgment, but we're embedded in a, in a nation among a people who are entering a period of judgment. And many believers are going to be offended at the judgments that God brings. Believers will also be offended because of the intensity of persecution, the suffering that comes from this. Well, God, I know that we just read in Peter that there's persecution, we shouldn't be surprised, but, but how could you let this happen to me? Don't you see how much I'm hurting? How can you let this happen to my child? Intervene, come and save us. We're waiting for you, come deliver us. And then he doesn't. And believers will become offended. I said this, I said, God, I've been an obedient son. How could you treat me this way? How could you let them do this to me? I served you for years. 
Well, it's the wrong way of thinking, but I'm just telling you the kind of questions that come up. So, and I would also add that I think that many believers will be offended also when in the midst of these difficulties that God allows, the judgments, the, the sin, and the persecution, they'll be offended because they'll, have a, they'll feel abandoned by God. The same way that I felt. So this is the direction I was heading. Uh, just that strangled relationship with God, and then God intervened. And this is what I really want to focus on, is that rebuilding process. So I had a, at a very low point, I had this picture in my mind of the valley of testing. And every believer goes through tests. I don't believe that God causes all of our difficulties. I don't know how all of that works. But, I, but in the midst of our difficulties, God does test us. And I had this picture of the valley of testing in my, in my mind, and it was full of the skeletons and the dry bones of believers who had failed in their tests. Now, I'm not talking about whether these people go to heaven or not. That's a different issue. But they're, they're believers who, in times of difficulty, lost their friendship with God. They failed in their test, and as a consequence, lost their friendship with God, and after that, produced very little fruit, maybe no fruit. And God drove this into my heart. And, and I, he moved me to begin to say, God, I don't want to end up like this. I don't want to end up a skeleton. I don't want to end up failing in my test. And I'd come to a point where I, I saw that there was very little I could do to fight for my, for my personal freedom. But I saw that I was losing my relationship with God, and I determined that I would fight for it. That I determined I am going to fight. I don't want to lose this relationship because I was close to losing it. And the steps that I began to take, the first was to put aside my demands and conditions that I had placed on him. And I made a decision with my will. At this time I was, well, my, my emotions were in turmoil. So it's not, it's not an, a decision according to my emotions. I had actually been suicidal during that period. But I made a decision with my will. Whatever you do or do not do, I will follow you. If, you. if you don't let me have a sense of your presence, I'm still going to follow. If you don't give me your voice, I'm still going to follow you. If you don't give me a, a, a grace that I can uh, feel or, or sense, in, I'm still going to follow you. If you don't show me gentleness or kindness, I will still follow you. If you leave me in prison, I am still going to follow you. The truth is I probably had a, when I was saying this, it's kind of in a defiance. You'll see, I'm still going to follow you. You may have left me here, but I'm still going to follow you. The truth is, you know, God, you know, is very gracious, very kind. And uh, he loves it when we go after him. Uh, and I couldn't, even in my weakness, my, even in my strongest strength, I'm still very weak. But God accepted this, and this positioned me so that he could begin to rebuild me. I was setting aside my demands, setting aside those conditions that I had placed on God, saying, it doesn't matter anymore. I am just going to run after you. And I determined to turn my eyes toward God. At my weakest point, I couldn't do much more than that, to just turn my eyes toward him. 
but turning them even one degree toward God rather than one degree away from him made all the difference because it positioned me to receive from him. So I had to make this decision again and again. It wasn't a one-time decision. I'm going, to, I'm going to turn my eyes toward you rather than away. I choose in, in, in my deepest pit in the darkness, I choose to turn my eyes toward you. It's not one time. It happened again and again. Day after day, I had that choice. Do I turn toward him in my desperation, in my despair, in my fear, or do I, in anger or disappointment or hurt, turn away from him? But again and again, I turn my eyes toward him. Again and again whether I had doubts or questions. Every one of those times I had a choice. And this is something I want to underline for you because no matter how desperate your situation, no matter how deep the darkness or, or discouragement or depression that you may be in, you can still make a choice. Even if you're very weak, you can choose to turn your eyes toward him that one degree. You can still do that. And that's so important. It's a choice. And even that one degree will make all the difference. Another thing that helped me a great deal was uh, I, I visualized a lockbox. And this lockbox, you know, had a, a very high-tech locking mechanisms because, see, I have a lot of time in prison to think about these things, you know. <clears throat> and, you know, a digital handprint, all these ways to make sure it's securely locked. And I opened that box and I, and I visualized <clears throat> putting into it my doubts and my questions and my accusation against God. And then I closed that door and I locked it, put my handprint on there, all these high-tech things that I would, would imagine, and I locked it very securely. And I said, God, you and I are the only two who can access this box, who can open it. And if you want to open this box and you want to deal with my questions and doubts, go ahead. I want you to do it. Go ahead. But as for me, I make a decision with my will. I am not going to open this box. I am not going to entertain these questions and doubts. I'm not going to give them a place in my mind anymore. And, and here is the key. So I'm saying... God, I don't need answers to have a relationship with you. I don't need answers from you. It's enough for me just to love you. And after that, I, I had questions and doubts. I still had things come to my mind, but as a discipline, I'd send them to that box. Say, go there. I'm not going to allow this into my mind. And I and I determined as a discipline I am not going to ask questions. I am simply going to love. I'm going to continue to turn toward you in my, and, and, and focus on loving you and not give a place to these doubts and questions. And this ended up breaking that stranglehold of doubt and offense in my heart, giving up my rights, as it were, to answers, just giving it up. I don't need it. And I was able then to begin to receive truth again, which I hadn't been able to do. Noreen would come and say something, I'd say, yes, but. Or I'd read something in the Bible, and it was like, yes, but. And that stopped when I locked those questions away. 
Because I came to realize I had been very focused on my questions. But at some point I became aware that God had questions for me. And I was questioning God's love and his faithfulness. And, and at some point I become aware, actually, I may not understand God's love and faithfulness, but they're not really being put to the test. It's my love. It's my faithfulness that's really being put to the test. So God had questions for me. Andrew, will you continue to love me even when you don't feel or see my love? Will you continue to be faithful to me <clears throat> even when you don't see my faithfulness? So I think there's a truth <coughs> that God tests his children. And one of those tests is overcoming offense. And I think of John the Baptist. Uh, I don't know if you know that David is one of the world experts on John the Baptist. He spent several years and wrote, wrote a whole dissertation. Uh, that had, that, so I'm very careful about what I say about John the Baptist here. <laughs> <clears throat> but Jesus was performing miracles, the kingdom was coming, and John is sitting in prison. And Jesus had power, but he didn't use it for John. And when Jesus answered John's puzzled question, saying, what's going on here? Jesus said nothing about John's imprisonment. He said nothing about his personal situation. Instead, Jesus' message is, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And he's warning John. John the Baptist, who's the greatest <clears throat> Jesus said the greatest man to have lived up to that time is in danger of being offended and entering a time of crisis. John, who's one of God's great servants, and so Jesus says, be careful, John, that after coming this far, you don't fail. You don't become offended and turn against. You turn away because of offense. And shortly after this, John was executed so I think actually God appears very willing to, to offend. Oh, thank you. I, I see that God appears very willing to offend people. And there are many examples in the Bible. I, I think of one. You know, most of Jesus' disciples, they turned away from him, they rejected him after he told them they would have to drink, drink his blood and eat his flesh. And I think it's John 6. And they just left. Everyone left. They were really, really offended at what Jesus said. And you know, Jesus could have gone after them and said, hey guys, wait, wait. You know, you, I think you didn't understand this completely. You're overreacting. Let me explain it to you a bit more. You know, and he didn't. He didn't go after them. He let them go. And maybe if he'd explained things to them, they wouldn't have, but he didn't. He let the offended leave. And then you have an, a, a contrast with this Syrophoenician woman who, you may remember this woman comes up to him and, and, and uh, he basically calls her a dog. Now, I don't know if in, in Indiana it's uh, offensive to call someone a dog, but, but in the Middle East it really is. <laughs> and he basically compares her to a dog and she says, I don't care. I'll be a dog, but I'm not leaving. And Jesus is so impressed. <coughs> and because 
she overcame the offense and just <clears throat> pressed into him. She and her daughter are saved. So the heart response is so critical. The heart, it seems that God doesn't go after the offended often. And the right response from the heart is so critical. It seems that God is looking for those who will overcome the offense, who will press through hurt and doubt and confusion. And by doing this, they will prove their devotion and their allegiance to Jesus, that in a sense they're, they're worthy of him. So there are many things that I don't understand, but, but I have to press through them. I think of Richard Wurmbrandt. Uh, he, he's one of my heroes, uh, a Romanian pastor who suffered persecution in communist prisons for 14 years and was, was tortured there. And one of the things that stood out to me as I, as I read him in prison is he tells of other prisoners who were in their, they, they were in prison because of their faith in Jesus Christ. He tells of fellow prisoners who went insane. They lost their minds. <clears throat> I could relate to this because I was afraid at times that I was losing my sanity. But how does this fit into our theology of suffering? Because when I first hear this, I don't know what your reaction, my reaction is like, no, no, this isn't right. Because what about my grace is sufficient for you? Jesus, isn't your grace sufficient so that your, your servants won't go insane? Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or that, what's that verse? Uh, God will never give me more than I can handle. You know that verse? It's, I, I have never been able to find it personally. But people often, you're obviously much better taught because most people say, yeah, I know that verse. <laughs> so I know that God could have given, God's grace is sufficient so that people don't go insane. He could give that grace, but he didn't. And this is how Wurmbrand dealt with it. He said, their insanity is beautiful to God. Why? Because they lost their minds because of their faithful commitment to Jesus Christ. And this means it's a beautiful sacrifice. And it's been made right in heaven. They will carry a tremendous honor throughout eternity because of their sacrifice for Jesus. But, but it wasn't made right in this world. And this, this demonstrates the cost of suffering, the human cost of suffering. I thought I was the weakest person in the world. I'm the only person who's, you know, been broken and, and, and like this uh, in their faith because everyone else somehow was stronger. And then after getting out of prison, I heard of Chinese and North Korean believers who were broken in prison the way I was. See, I'd only read about the very strong ones. Maybe the biographies don't tell the whole story, or maybe those people are just really, really strong and made for prison. But, but for me, I, I wasn't like that. But I heard about others, Chinese and North Koreans, who broke in prison. We don't really hear their stories. And when they came out, they were still broken. And I've heard about the le Chinese leaders who went to prison and were very strong and came out and immediately went back into ministry, which I admire so much. But there are others, pastors, who went to prison and were broken and they didn't go back into ministry. They were just broken. 
And part of that is the, the shame of having broken and not having lived up to those high standards that maybe are unrealistic. And because of their shame and embarrassment, then they separate from the church. So it does, it's not all victory. There's a human cost. I was reading a few months ago, uh, there were some Chinese believers held in a, in a secret prison. After one week, they, they wanted to die. They wanted to commit suicide. And my, my initial reaction is just anger. God, why didn't you give them enough grace so that, I mean, after one week, they want to kill themselves. Where's your grace? And then I have to shut up and say, I don't ask questions anymore. I just put them in the box. But the thing is that this, this moves me. And I think we're human. We break. And God allows it. And when it comes to persecution, there are no outcomes that are guaranteed in this life. We don't know what the immediate results will be. And we live with uncertainty. We don't know how, when, or even if our difficulties will end. And this uncertainty really tests the heart. Some people have said to me, Andrew, the main narrative of your imprisonment was your trust in God. You were just trusting God. And I said, I don't really know that that's the... I would characterize it that way. Because, you know, I think often... I had a hard time getting my, my mind around trust and my heart around trust. And it's so important to God that we trust Him. But so often, we'd link trust to an outcome. You know, people would, you know, Noreen was afraid of flying for years, and people would say to her, just trust God. What does that mean? Where does God say your plane isn't going to go down? But the idea was, and I'm sure if you sit down and have a long theological discussion, they'll say, well, you know, I'm not really saying that. But really what's communicated is, just trust God. It's going to turn out well. And people said to me, Andrew, just trust God in prison. And what they were communicating to me was, You're, he's going to get you out. I look for that verse. Andrew's going to be released from prison. There is no such verse. So it, I, I know that we're supposed to trust the person and not the outcome, but it's very difficult to separate those in our hearts. And so, so this is how I, I, I began to apply trust in my life and to think about it. That I can say, I lean into the leadership of Jesus. I say, Jesus, you are a good leader. I believe this. I believe you're a good leader. And I don't know what you're going to do with me. I don't know what difficulties you're going to take me through. I don't know what you will allow me the, uh, to experience. But I can say that you're a good leader. And I'm, I'm trusting you to, to shepherd my heart, to take my heart through these difficulties, and that you will take me through to your kingdom. Again, I don't know what that will look like. But I am leaning into you. I lean into you, into your leadership. Say, you're a good leader. You will shepherd my heart and you will take me through to your kingdom because that's really what matters in the end is that I end up with him for eternity. And so I, I learned to lean into his leadership. That's how I think of trust, how I apply trust in my life now. I don't have to understand I don't need the answers. I just have to lean into him. 
Isaiah 50, verse 10 became my theme verse in prison. God is speaking to Israel in exile, and he says, For the one who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and lean on his God. Now, God could have said, and this is what we probably hear in a lot of our churches is, hey, the light's coming, light is wonderful, light, light, light. Just wait for the light, it's coming. God wants you to be in the light. And it's true. But God didn't say that to them. He basically said, guys, you're going to be in the dark for a while. And when you're in the dark, when you have no light, lean on me. Lean into me. So Noreen has imagined a, a Job-like setting in which Satan says to God, take away Andrew's sense of your presence, since he emphasizes that so much, it's so important to Andrew, take it away from him, and you'll see what happens. And God says, okay, I will, and you will see what happens. I think part of my testing was that I not have a sense of God's presence, that I not have his voice, and God wanted me to learn to stand in the dark, to lean into him whatever my feelings, whatever my circumstances. Now, people sometimes tell me about a difficulty, even as I've been here, I've talked to several of you. And usually what happens is people start to tell me a difficulty and then they, they say, oh, but Andrew, I'm, it's nothing like compared to what you went through. Yours was really hard and now you know mine, I'm just, you know. And I, I say, wait, wait, wait. My tests were enough to knock me out of friendship with God. Your tests are more than enough to knock you out of friendship with God. So I, our tests are different. I had an intense testing in prison. Your tests are different from mine, but we're tested in the same areas of the heart. Our son, one of our sons, was in, in an elite uh, military program, trying out for it, and he suffered an injury that knocked him out. And he still has the consequences of that injury. And his dream is kind of shattered. This is what he'd been aiming for. He was at the top of the group physically. He was doing great. Injury knocks him out. And he's opening up his heart to us, which we're really glad for. And I said, Blaze, you actually are asking the same questions that I asked in prison. Completely different circumstances and context. The same questions and doubts and struggles that I had there, you're having through this. So each of us is going to go through times of difficulty. It could be persecution or, or it could be some other crisis, a broken relationship, the death of a loved one, a, a, a terrible illness. And at some point, not in every difficulty, because often we will have some sense of God's support and grace through it or from the body, but it's very likely that at some point in your life you're going to go into a period of crisis and you're going to be in the dark. And most of you have already been there, and if you haven't been, then you will in the future. And then you'll have those same doubts and questions maybe or the, the same struggle that I had. And you may cry out, where are you, God? Where is Jesus? Where is my shepherd? Where is the lover of my soul? 
God, why are you silent during the most difficult time of my life? Why have you left me in darkness? Why haven't you intervened? And I say, I don't know. I don't know. I still don't have answers to many things. And I've accepted that I may not have answers in this lifetime. I think at some point God will satisfy our hearts in every way. But, but maybe in this lifetime I will not have answers. But much more important than getting the answers is the simple truth that you must survive the test. You must make it through. You must remain faithful. Your devotion to God is being tested and you must hold on to Him. And what you do in these points of crisis, they will define your relationship with God. So I I want to encourage you to take seriously the danger of the offended heart. And especially so as we enter a more difficult time. Don't allow offense to take root in your heart. And if you have offense now, if you have those deep disappointments in God, then deal with it now. Just ask Him to tear it out. And be on guard against it in the future. And decide, I will not allow offense to strangle my friendship with God. I won't allow it. I make a decision with my will. I am not going to allow my disappointments or unmet expectations to break my relationship and destroy my friendship with you, God. And decide, I will turn my eyes toward Jesus. I will not turn them away. By the way, one thing we do is we make decisions ahead of time before hardship so that when we go into the hardship and are engulfed in that sense of crisis, we know what we're supposed to do and we can do it. Because otherwise the the tendency is is to, well, toward offense and to run away. Make decisions ahead of time so you have that anchor when you go into hardship. And make that decision, I I say again, I will turn my eyes toward Jesus and not away from him, no matter what. And I suggest you create your own lockbox and take the questions and doubts you have and just put them in there. Don't don't give them a place in your mind. I want to end by saying God, God is faithful. But his faithfulness may look different from what we expect. He is loving, but his love may look different from what we expect. And what I say now is, I say to God, I I will speak the truth. We speak the truth because it's true, not because we feel it. There's a lot of emphasis now on my truth in the United States. Being authentic, my truth. Say, no, there is God's truth. We say what God says about things, what God says about himself and what he says about me and what he says about others. And what God says about himself is very important that we say this as well. And God says that he's good. He says that he is loving, that he is faithful. And therefore, we must say those things as well. And so I look at a situation where I say, I don't see your faithfulness here. But I will say that you are faithful. I just don't understand your faithfulness. In this difficult situation, I don't see it. But I will still declare it. That I don't understand your faithfulness. And our expectations may be different from what a faithfulness or love may be different from what 
God intends. I think of Paul, and I'm, I'm finishing up here. I've already gone past my time. I, you know, one of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy 4.18. And Paul says, The Lord will save me from, rescue me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now, when Paul wrote this, he was in his last imprisonment in a pretty miserable Roman dungeon. And he was expecting to be executed. And he was actually executed shortly after he wrote this. So that's the context. He's in a miserable dungeon expecting to be executed, but he declares, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he'll bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So what does rescue look like there? Maybe not what we expect. God will open the prison doors and I'll run out of the dungeon and I'll keep on with my mess. No, he knows he's going to die. Say, Jesus is going to rescue me. He'll take me through. He's going to take me through. I'll just also throw in, Jesus tells his disciples, you know, people are going to hate you. They're going to they're persecute you. They're going to put some of you in prison and some of, them, some, of, some of you are going to be killed. But not a hair of your head will be harmed. Well, what does harm look like there? What does it mean? So I want to emphasize, he will shepherd our hearts. He, will shep he did this with my heart. He took my heart that was broken, wounded, offended, so angry at him, and he brought me through. He shepherded my heart. He protected it. And I, I'm just filled with love for him. So, <laughs> so I'll finish with this. Lean into the leadership of Jesus. Lean into your beloved. When you don't understand, when you're weak, <laughs> even when you don't under see his faithfulness or love, lean into the leadership of Jesus. Lean into your beloved. He is committed to bringing you safely through to his kingdom. Lord, I bless my brothers and sisters in your name. Lord, where there is offense and we become so easily angered and offended toward you, I do. Confess this. Lord, where there is that offense or disappointment that's taken root in hearts, Lord, expose it, show it, so that we can tear it out. And Holy Spirit, I ask for you in a supernatural work to come and bring healing to hearts that have been wounded. And draw us into that embrace where we lean into you, Jesus. Draw us into this embrace. Lord, I ask for that deep faithfulness and commitment to, that you build it in our hearts. In Jesus' name.